God, I'm grateful for this time together. I'm grateful for an opportunity to worship you in the midst of our community. I pray, Lord, uh, this morning as we open your word, even here, Lord, would you, would you meet us by your spirit to help us see and understand the good news, how it changes, how it shapes, how it transforms in new ways. And so, um, God, I, I pray that you'd help us to apply this gospel to life this morning. I pray that even as people are walking past, that they would hear your word. Lord, we know that it is the, the word of God by the spirit of God, that your spirit is active through your word, that the normative means by which your spirit is active is showing people Christ through your proclaimed word. And so we rely on you to do that even now in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably noticed, all right, one, one thing that Hollywood knows for sure is that everyone loves a good origin story. Am I right? So, so you're not unaware of this, uh, especially in recent years. Movie makers are extremely aware about the tendency of consumers to pull out their wallets and, you know, spend their money at the box office, especially when even obscure Hollywood characters, like characters from older stories, uh, are given an origin, right? It's, it's told of their beginnings. Okay, so Joker, Maleficent, Cruella, Monsters University, Revenge of the Sith, Captain America, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Batman Begins. These are a few that come to mind, right? Uh, all of these stories attempt to show how a greater story really had their beginning. And more than that, like, they attempt to give some of the context and background to a, a specific character's origin in order to help the person watching put the pieces together in a more complete way of the larger story. They become crucial details that help us understand the motives, right, to why a villain becomes a villain, why a hero chooses to act heroically, and that makes sense because we all know that the events of a larger story never happen in a vacuum. They don't just happen on their own. Villains typically don't become villains overnight, right? Okay, so the same is true in news media. If there's some kind of a crime committed or some kind of a heroic act in the news, what do we see the next morning on the newspapers? The face of the perpetrator or the face of the hero with some biographical markers, like, hey, here's, here's what was happening in their life. Here's some background in order to help the readers better understand the larger events in view, what might have taken place, some of the motive behind it. This is true even in like modern biography. Modern biography tends to fly off the shelves. Steve Jobs, a biography about him flies off the shelves. Why? Because people who've accomplished something deemed by the public to be either fantastic or harmful are very interesting in larger culture because they help fill in the blanks for the reader. You know, this amazing thing happened. How did that happen? How might I maybe one day do this, right? So this is why we read these stories. Similarly, here in John's account, as we come to chapter 8, his account of the events surrounding what Christians call the gospel, this is shorthand for the good news of Jesus. So the events of the gospel are the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in sharing this account, John seeks to provide some of the crucial details surrounding that good news. Like, why is it that Christians call this good news? What about the news that John shares could we call good? Could we call something that is life-changing and transformative? Well, he wants to help us understand that in his narrative, essentially by contrasting two different stories. 
you know, as I, as I read through this section early on in the week, and even at the end of last week, as I was kind of including the I am the light of the world passage in my studying, it just really struck me that when we get to this section, it's all about these contrasts, but there is a central contrast that stands out, two different stories in the text, humanity's origin story, you know, and Jesus's origin story. And hopefully it will become obvious what I mean when I say the word origin. I don't mean that both had a starting point or a beginning. That's not what I mean. I simply mean to say where they come from. Like, where does humanity come from? Where does Jesus come from? John wants to set out to address these questions. And so in order to understand how the people could be searching for a savior, have the savior right in front of them. As we've been going through chapter six and seven and now into eight, they continue to miss the savior in front of them. We need to really understand what it is that Jesus claimed about himself and what it is that Jesus claimed about us. Like who did he say he was? Who does he say we are? Right? So he does this. John seeks to tell these origin stories by giving us four contrasts in the text, I really think, so a contrast is really, it's not just a comparison, it's seeking out differences from with specific differences between the two. So we're going to see that in four ways, four contrasts, starting in verses 21 to 23. So could you look on there with me? If you have a Bible in front of you or a device that has the Bible in front of you, that would be helpful. I'd encourage you to silence notifications. Let's keep our, our attention on the text. But John records it this way. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you're from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So here at the very front end of of this like, what I really think is a fourfold contrast differences between Jesus and us. What we start with is what I'll call contrasting identities. If you look in your notes, contrasting identities. In other words, in order to understand where Jesus comes from on the pages of, of human history, you have to understand who he is. Foundationally, you have to understand who he is. Likewise, in order to understand where humanity comes from, which is a question that people wrestle with on a daily basis in our culture. If you want to understand where humanity comes from, humanity's story, you have to understand who we are, our identity, right? So contrasting identities are, are, are central to the way that John tells this narrative. And last week, you know, Jesus is speaking with this exact same crowd that he's speaking to now in this morning's text. It's probably happening again. Tail end of the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple. And it might make you wonder, why didn't, Jeremy just deal with this section of text in his I am the light of the world section last week, right? Like why spend an entirely different week from within the exact same conversation? I thought we were preaching narrative to narrative, but really we see the reason right away in verse 21 because it starts with, so he said to them again, and and we need to take note, like this word again, especially as we read through gospel narratives like this, this word again indicates a pause. It's a break in conversation. And it's a setting, up, setting up a new theme or, or explaining themes that we've already worked with. So we see a pause between the last conversation and this one, a new section of text that's a distinct part of the conversation, though it's still directly connected to everything that it's, Jesus has already talked about. 
even explaining some of the same kind of themes. So in the midst of that, what is it that Jesus tells them? A break, a pause has happened. Now Jesus is speaking to them about something more. He tells them this, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I'm not sure if you remember this, but Jesus said something familiar. He said something very similar to this. Not identical, but very similar to this a few weeks ago as we were looking through chapter 7, verses 33 to 34. And I said that this was coming and that this would help us understand that section in chapter 7. That he was going away, that where he was going they couldn't follow, and there was some sense in which, like, this is not good news for the hearer. It gets tragic that he's going away and that we're not going to follow. But I think... There's also a sense in which we read this verse. We read what Jesus is saying here. I'm going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you can't follow. And we think, first of all, that's really confusing. And we'll talk about why it's confusing in a second. But second of all, it seems really harsh. I'm going to go away and you're going to seek me, but I'm not going to let you find me. Oh, what's Jesus talking about? Well, okay. First of all, it's confusing because they didn't really care if Jesus went away. Jesus says... I'm going away and you will seek me. What does he mean? They're going to seek him. They don't care. In fact, they can't wait for him to leave. They're eager for Jesus to step off of his pedestal and and, and go away into obscurity. We'll see this throughout John. The religious leaders plotted to kill him. We'll actually see they wanted to squash any rumors of his resurrection when that happens, right? Like just a couple chapters, for the last couple chapters we've seen, the religious leaders don't even want Jesus to be uttered among the people. They don't even want him as a topic of conversation. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to go and you're going to seek me? They're probably hearing this and they're like, dude, if you want to leave, you can just go. We don't care. Go and never come back. That would make their day. So so what does he mean by this? Well, listen, um, he says, I'm going away. You'll seek me. But this actually shows us. What does this show us? Just the problem that the Gospel of John sets out to address. Like, you will not understand John's Gospel if you don't understand what Jesus is trying to draw our attention to right here in chapter 8. So if you're like either a new Christian or you're a non-believer who's curious about the Bible, right? Or if you've been a Christian your whole life and you've wondered about these things, John really helps us understand context to the Scriptures because essentially Jesus says like, okay, I'm going to come, I'm going to depart. But you're still going to be searching, not for me. You'll still be searching for a Savior, searching for a Messiah, searching for what you believe should be central. Meanwhile, Jesus says, you've missed me. Like, you're searching for the Messiah, I'm right here. I'm feet from you. You're searching for a Savior, I'm right in front of you. But they've missed him, and he's going to leave, and they're still going to be searching endlessly searching, searching for the Savior that they think if God ever erupted into human history, if he ever came, if he, if he ever sent his Messiah into this broken world, well, obviously, this is what it would look like. So they're looking for it from their vantage point. They're not looking for Jesus as he's revealed himself here. So they can't follow him. Where he's going, they can't follow him. Why? Because they missed him. They, did, they didn't realize who he was. And that leads to tragic ends, according to the text. Like, there are tragic consequences. What are those consequences? Okay, we're going to come back to that in a minute because it's really, it's really important. Okay. 
But we can see evidence right away that Jesus is right, that they've completely missed him, who he is, that they don't understand what he's talking about. Because the Jews say in verse 22, it says, the Jews said, and by the Jews, this is just talking about the religious leaders, essentially those who are a part of this movement that stands opposed to Jesus in the first century, who are still clinging to law. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. You know, when they told Jesus and when Jesus told them in chapter 7 that, we're, that he's going to go away and they can't follow him, they thought, what's he talking about? They, they assumed, he must be talking about leaving, do you remember? Leaving for the, the Jewish people scattered across the Greek nations. And maybe they said, he's even talking about going to the Greeks themselves. There was something that they were right about that. The gospel does extend to all nations, right? The gospel would extend uh, beyond Jerusalem and into the Greek-speaking world and then beyond even further, okay? So the gospel extends to all nations, but that wasn't what Jesus was talking about here. In the same way, now they hear this language that Jesus uses, and they think maybe he's contemplating suicide. Like when he says, hey, I'm, I'm about to go, and where I'm going, you can't follow. Maybe he's talking about his own death. And there's some irony here too, because there's a sense in which there's a part of this, there's kind of a part of this that they get right, you know, they rightly discern that he appears to at least a little bit be talking about his own death. And while it's certainly true that Jesus himself was born in order to die, like that's why he came into this world, and we're going to see that more in the text this morning, that he was born in order to die, what we find at the end of John, what we find at the end of his account, isn't, even at the end of this conversation, you know, isn't that Jesus took his own life, but rather that he gave his life for others. He didn't take his own life selfishly. He didn't take his own life to, to gain some kind of attention. He didn't take his own life in order to say, well, you're going to reject me? Fine. I'll go over here. He doesn't take his own life selfishly. He gives his own life for others. Gives his own life for us. And that's the very thing that they're struggling to understand. Why? See, this is why they're... They, they phrase it the way they do. They don't understand why the Messiah would come to die. This concept of a dying Messiah, totally foreign, totally foreign to this crowd, to this first century Jewish crowd. So why would he give up his own life? Why would he have to give his life for others? Jesus is going to tell us, but he does so by contrasting their origins. He starts, like, you can't understand why Jesus would have to come give up his life until we understand who he is and who we are. So he says, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And here we see that central contrast in all the Bible. Right? Like John's so good. John's gospel account is so helpful to help us cut to the very center of what the Bible's about. So if you're, if you're wondering, what's the Bible about? Here we see it, you see it at the center. This contrast between creator and creation, between God and humanity, between being of this world and being not of this world. So we we had to talk about this right away in John. Do you remember in his prologue, the first 18 verses, what is it that John does right away, right as he starts his gospel account? He gives us this big contrast between who Jesus is, and who we are. His identity, our identity. Where he came from, where we come from. In the beginning was the Word. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this is Christian doctrine. Jesus is God, the eternally preexistent second person of the Trinity, the creator of all things. God himself entered into human history. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not only is Jesus the Word, not only is he pre-existent, he's always existed, but he actually, everything else that, that's not him, that exists, he created. He's the creator of all things. And not only that, but his creation rebelled against him. The creator then stepped into his creation, though they thought they knew better than the creator, which we're going to talk about. They thought they could do a better job managing creation than the creator. They thought, in, in a lot of ways, they thought of themselves as the true creator. We did. This is our story. The world thought they were God. They attempted to put themselves on the throne of their life. We attempted to do that. The center of our own worlds. And so in John's gospel, right away in the first few verses, you start to get an understanding, right, as we did together, of what John means when he uses this word world. What he means and what he doesn't mean by this term. Like, when John talks about the world, just for review, review's sake, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about it in a positive sense of creation. Like, oh, God so loved the world. He's actually not talking about this in a positive sense of, of those who've been created in God's image, though we do see that kind of use in the scriptures. It's not how John uses the word. It's not even a neutral word in John's gospel, meaning the, the location in which human beings live, you know, that, that he created for us to live in. Actually, it's a technical term that puts the problem that Jesus came to address on full display. John's really interested in making sure that we understand, that his readers understand that there's a problem that Jesus came to address. And we need to know what that problem is. And the reason we need to know what the problem is, is precisely what Jesus is going to talk about in the text today. Okay, so listen, um, here's how we defined the word world right away in chapter one. Do you remember? Modified from a couple of different commentaries. The world in John is not the universe. It's not just location, but it's the created order, especially of human beings in active rebellion against its creator. The created order in active rebellion against its creator. So when Jesus says, you're from below, I'm from above, you're of this world, I'm not of this world, do you you start to see some of the context, some of the significance here. He's drawing attention to the central problem of sin, of rebellion against God. He's drawing attention to what happened right away in Genesis 3. Impossible to understand John's gospel without this. Right on the heels of creation, we decided we didn't need God. We decided we knew better. We rebelled against our good creator. We rebelled against the king, right? By nature of that rebellion, by nature of who we are, that is the world order to which we belong. Jesus does not belong to that world order. Jesus is not a part of the world order of rebels against the king. Jesus is the king who stepped into this world to save the rebels. It's, it's an astounding message of love and hope that the king that was rebelled against stepped into the world. That rebelled against him to save the, the rebels. That's what we see here. 
Jesus is from above. He's the creator who's entered human history in order to rescue his creation from their own rebellion hearts. And that's why, listen, if they miss him, and they are, they're missing him, if the Savior really is standing immediately before them in the temple, if the Messiah has come in Jesus Christ, if they've not recognized him, if they can't follow where he goes, do you see now why that's so tragic? It means they won't have that central problem dealt with. They won't have rebellion and sin dealt with. And therefore, Jesus says, they'll die in their sins. In other words, they've separated themselves from an almighty God. They do not desire God, right? Like, they'll die in their sins, separated from God forever, not because God has no desire to be with us, but because we don't want to be with him. By nature of our sin, we don't desire God. So because of this, because of our desire to not be with him, if we miss him, we'll die in our sins. That's what's at stake in these contrasting identities, according to Jesus. It's a contrast, if you're taking notes, you can write this down to kind of explain it. It's a contrast between the problem of sin and the provision of a savior. Really, that's the contrasting identities. On the one hand, with the identity of humanity, we see the problem of sin. On the other hand, in, in the identity of Jesus, it's the provision of a savior who can only be God himself entering into human history, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So, okay, that leads us to a question. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? Problem of sin, provision of a savior, but how, if we don't desire that savior, if the people are hearing Jesus speak and and missing him, what's to be done? If this is true about us, if it's true about who we are, rebellious creation, and, and where we come from, this world order, and the problem of that, that this world order is in active rebellion against its creator, then what's to be done about it? Well, here we see now contrasting responses. There are a couple of different ways you could respond to this message of the gospel. And Jesus shows us both. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Throughout John, we see glimpses. Glimpses of what we already looked at. If you remember, we preached through Revelation together as a church four or five series ago, six series ago, a couple years ago. So we preached through Revelation together, and, and John wrote that too. He wrote it probably not too long after he completed this gospel according to John. But even as he writes Revelation, what we come to see is when it comes to the identity of Jesus in Revelation, when it comes to the idea of salvation, what it means to, to be saved by God, John, do you remember? John's pretty black and white. He's pretty black and white. You're, you're, you either have the seal of God, either have God's seal, or you either have the seal of the devil, right? Like, he's, This is the black and white of John. We see that even in John's gospel account. The reason, according to the text, that John is black and white on these issues in his gospel account and in Revelation, the reason he's black and white is because Jesus is black and white on these issues. Here we have another example of Jesus himself teaching something that our larger culture really despises so that people will commonly say, well, I love Jesus, I love his morals, I love his radical love, and I wish Christians would just focus on that instead of all this like exclusivity and, and dying in your sins and like o- only through Jesus. But the problem is, Jesus himself says this repeatedly. He says, listen, since these people, this is Jesus speaking, it's not John, right? So So listen, you've missed the central problem. You believe that the reason the Messiah would come into this world would be to save Jewish people from Roman oppression, 
would be to, to solve a specific issue of oppression and injustices that you see my presence solving for you. But Roman oppression is just child's play in comparison to the real problem of sin in the human heart. In fact, Roman oppression is just a symptom of the deeper problem. It is a problem. It's a major problem. But it's a symptom of the deeper problem, one that you'll never solve unless you deal with that deeper problem. And since you've misdiagnosed the central problem, Jesus says, you've completely missed God's answer to that problem in who I am and what I've come to do. You know, there are stories told, um, even recently, even in the last two decades, and it's something that continues to get press, actually, of tribes people in the jungles of South America who had curable bacterial infections ravaging their bodies. But in part because of a very dark worldview, when doctors showed up to these tribes people with medicine that can cure these diseases, they're easily cured. The medicines just feed away. Antibiotics just feed away. They can clear up these things that are just ravaging the bodies. They're, they're shunned by those who are sick. They're pushed away. They're not believed. They're not trusted. They're actually treated in a lot of these stories that you hear, and there are even like long-form podcasts about some of this. They're treated with hostility, these doctors who come with this medicine. Why? Because people don't understand how it is that these doctors who bring medicine couldn't realize that the witch doctor of the neighboring tribe had cursed them. And what they really need is for the chantings of their own witch doctor to spend, send dark spiritual forces that would be greater against their, the enemy tribe than against theirs. They, the result is that the, these tribes people died in their sins. It was curable. There was hope held out to them. There was a known problem with a known solution that really all but guaranteed life in that moment. But they'd misdiagnosed the problem. They'd heaped suspicion on the one who came with the solution. Even when it was right in front of them, feet in front of them, bags right there, filled with the very things they needed. There were, however, in these stories, a handful who decided to trust what the doctors were saying, receive antibiotics that the doctors could easily administer in. To a person, they ended up living, gaining health, strength, vigor. This is what's happening in this text, but at an infinitely grander level, infinitely grander scale. Okay, Here's the contrasting responses. Either reject Jesus and face judgment, like miss him, not see the answer right in front of you, or believe in Jesus as Jesus revealed himself to us. So if you're taking notes, that's... That's the contrasting responses. Either reject Jesus and face judgment, reject Jesus and miss the salvation, the hope that he holds out to you, or believe in Jesus, the kicker is, as Jesus revealed himself. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says, look at verse 24 again. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe, believe what? Believe that Jesus existed? Believe in a Jesus of your own making. Believe in, in a kind of Jesus that you're comfortable believing. Believe in a kind of Jesus that maybe speaks to the issues of your own heart. You know, the things that, that you think Jesus should address. No, Jesus says, unless you believe in me as I have revealed myself to you, in me as I am speaking, as I am disclosing myself, as I am disclosing the problem, 
In other words, unless you believe that I am he. Right? Because it's the very issue that the Old Testament addresses. It's the very issue that the festival that they're at is shining light on. Literally. This phrase, I am he, unless you believe that I am he, these are the same words that Jesus spoke to the disciples when they're on the water. And he walks out to them in the storm. Ego me, I am. These are the same words, you guys, that he used immediately after that when he told the crowd, I am the bread of life. Same words he spoke last week when we looked in the text, he said, I am the light of the world. When he says, I am he, the, the translation is, I am. I am. These are the words that he'll use throughout his gospel account with all of these I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Remember, this phrase, I am, echoes back the very name of God himself, the great I am, the name spoken out of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Like, so I, I addressed some of that last week, knowing that we'd get to this section this week, those words would be repeated, because especially for a group of Jewish people gathered in the temple during a religious feast, intended to point them back into the Old Testament text in which God revealed himself to his people, this word carries weight. Because these words, I am he, I am, I am, they're used throughout, especially Isaiah's prophecy, as a means of God saying, this is who I am. I'm going to describe myself to you so that you will recognize me. So, so let me just read. Let me read what Jesus says here again. Verse 24 for like the fourth time. Let me read Isaiah 43, a couple of instances where Isaiah used the exact same language. Because I want you to get the weight of what Jesus is claiming. You don't have to believe that this is what Jesus is saying. Well, you do. But, but, but you, it is what Jesus is claiming. We should see that this is what Jesus says about himself. So let's listen. I told you that, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now listen to, listen to Isaiah 43. And in particular, think of last week. When Jesus essentially told us we'd have no sight apart from him, we'd be blinded apart from him, that he is the light, that we live in darkness, okay? So so think of the context here in the midst of John's context, but in the midst of chapter 8 in particular. So Isaiah writes, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared, declares the Lord. I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? And so we see the way in which Isaiah is being echoed throughout John, this appeal to witnesses, that Jesus testifies about himself, that the Father, Jesus testifies about the Father, but the Old Testament testifies about Jesus, that the disciples would testify or bear witness about Jesus moving forward, but also 
Here are just two of many examples. If you were to read through Isaiah, in which God tells his people, I am. I am he. I am he who has come to save. I am he who has power over everything. So when Jesus says, for unless you believe that I am he, look, this is what he's saying. This is the context. He's saying, I'm God himself. Like This is what Jesus is claiming about himself. I'm God himself, entered into human history to save, to do exactly what I told you I would do in all those passages throughout Isaiah. He's come to offer them salvation and mercy. The salvation and mercy that's been held out to them this whole time. The salvation and mercy that they've had to depend on as God's people throughout their history. He's come to extend that to them. They've missed it. He's finally arrived, but the people have opted for a Messiah in their making, after their own image. And so even when he's gone, they're going to continue to search for a Messiah that just isn't there. And that, look, this is what we do. So easy, so easy. For us to desire a Jesus in our own making, to reject Jesus as he reveals himself to us in just very clear ways, and then to continually be searching for us for salvation from whatever it is we think truly ails us, and to make that salvation the center of our search. When something far more deep and central and, and, and pivotal, something with much higher stakes is right there, and Jesus is just holding it out to us in who he is and what he's done. So, so we've seen contrasting identities, the problem of sin, the provision of a savior, okay? We've seen contrasting responses, either reject Jesus, face judgment, or receive, believe, believe in Jesus as Jesus revealed himself, not as we want to think of him, okay? Because now, thirdly, we actually see contrasting testimony. We see why it is that Jesus has that the people have such a hard time believing in Jesus as he reveals himself. We see see it very clearly. So contrasting testimony right out of the gate, we see evidence that when he says, I am he, this is a loaded, this is a loaded term that the people very well recognize. Because look at verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Like, none of this makes sense unless they really understand the implications of his language. Who are you? Jesus, uh, Jesus said to them, just what I said, just what I've been saying, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. Okay, we really do see contrasting testimonies. Now, I'll explain in a minute what I mean by that about who Jesus is and who the people are. Like, so we've seen contrasting identities, right? Jesus told us where they come from, where we come from, and, and where he comes from. We've seen contrasting responses. But now we actually see what the people claim about who they are and what Jesus claims about who they are. What, what Jesus claims about us, but, but what we so often get stuck in and want to believe about ourselves. Okay, because here they hear him say, I am he, and they respond, hang on, hang on. Who exactly are you claiming to be? Like, they're bristling at this a little bit. And Jesus responds really in three ways. First, he tells them he's not saying anything different than what he's always said about himself. You know, it's not like Jesus is suddenly changing his tune. Right? From the very beginning of his public ministry, he's made it clear who he is and where he comes from. And repeatedly, this has gotten him into trouble with the religious leaders. Do you remember that there's been moments in which actually the people... 
anticipated, okay, he's going to tone it down, the rhetoric a bit, because there's just no way that Jesus can keep talking this way. He's going to get himself killed. So they're surprised when he keeps, he keeps opening his mouth and saying things that make himself equal with God, even in the midst of them wanting to kill him. And the same is true here, because then secondly, so he, he keeps saying what he's always, Jesus says, look, always what I've been saying. But secondly, unlike some politician who's asked a difficult question that no matter how he answers it is going to make people mad. So he, he gives an answer that isn't really an answer, which, you know, this time in the political calendar year, we're used to seeing and experiencing. Unlike that, Jesus actually says, I have more to say. I have more to say about this issue. Not only does, is it what I've always been saying, but I have a lot more to say and I have a lot more to judge about you. And that brings us thirdly to the reality that what he has to testify about himself actually has to do with you and me, not just about him. And that's the breaking point, right? That's the sticking point for these people. When Jesus testifies about himself, you know, he's not just testifying about himself because the reason Jesus had to come is inextricably tied up with our problem. So for him to testify about himself necessitates he's going to say something about us too. And that's the issue here. It reminds me of the beginning of chapter 7 when Jesus tells his brothers, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. It's impossible for Jesus to say this about himself, about who he is, without also bearing witness about who we are. In other words, his testimony doesn't just have to deal with him. The, this is the problem they have with the gospel in, in John's account, the crowd. It's the problem the crowd has. It's the problem that we have today. It's this, I, would, I would say this is by far the central problem that those who are skeptical of the Christian faith have with the gospel when it's preached and presented. But not only that, this is the central problem that churched Christians have with the gospel when it's proclaimed week over week. If God sent Jesus into the world to save the world, what that means is that the world needs saving. And while the people that Jesus speak to, speaks to now, much like us, much like us, can undoubtedly think of people who need that kind of a savior, oh yeah, 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 I know some People who are broken and in despair and their lives are a mess. Sure, but that's not me. That's the idea here. They can think of others, but they don't really think of themselves as those who... Yeah, it's not, I'm not the one deserving judgment, you know? That's their position here. And what, what really offends them is what Jesus is saying here is, I'm talking about you. You will die in your sins. I'm not just talking about the Romans. I'm not just talking about the Greeks. I'm not talking about all other nations apart from Israel. I'm saying you will die in your sins. You've got this central problem of the human heart. I'm talking about you. In other words, one of the central reasons they rejected Jesus isn't because of what Jesus claims about himself, but rather what Jesus claims about them. And man, this is so easy for us as Christians to look down the nose at the surrounding culture, the surrounding world, to maintain this us-them kind of attitude towards those who are non-believers as though we figured this out because we're so good. We figured this out on our own strength. We figured this out because we were such good candidates to be Christians. And Jesus comes and he totally levels that playing field and he says, no, there is no human being alive apart. There's no human being alive today apart from the man, Jesus Christ. There's no person who can claim to be better than in the sense of, in any kind of sense of Sin, in any kind of sense of avoiding sin, in any kind of sense of needing or deserving judgment, 
You know, and, and, and this is true. Like, okay, so the central reason they reject him isn't what he says about himself, but what he says about them. I can prove it to you because we've already seen it, right? So if Jesus were saying in the midst of these crazy signs and wonders and miracles and power and authority, if he were saying, yep, I am he, and don't you worry because I've come to rid you of those nasty Romans, how would they respond? We've seen it. They tried to seize him and make him king. If he said, yep, I am he, I'm going to use the exact same language about myself, and I've come to do just the thing that you want me to do, how would they respond? Cheers. But he says the same words about himself. He says, I am he, but I've come to deal with the sin in your hearts. The central thing that's keeping you from God. The reality that you're facing judgment, that you're eternally separated apart from me and my work. They don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear this. They can't believe it. And, and what I mean, you know, contrasting testimonies, it's like imagine expert testimony in a courtroom. So one side gives an expert, te- you know, an expert witness. The, the, the defense gives an expert witness. And, you know, the, the, the defense loves the credentials. And the prosecution, they don't really have a problem with the credentials. They have a problem with what he's saying. Then the prosecution gets their expert witness on the stand. And, the, and they love, they love the, their expert. The defense doesn't really mind. It's not really the qualifications of the expert. Let's say they have the exact same qualifications. But if the testimony is different, then all of a sudden we got problems. That's what's happening here. You have contrasting testimonies. You have contrasting testimonies. One that expresses a belief that we can do good enough to save ourselves from sin and one that knows that that's impossible. The people want to be those who are good enough to rescue themselves, to pull themselves up, to save themselves. And Jesus is giving testimony that says that is impossible, but there's good news with that. It's not just bad news. Okay, so that then, okay, brings us to our final contrast because Jesus says you should know this is impossible. You should know it even by looking back to your own scripture in which you see failure after failure after failure to follow God, to depend on God. But moment after moment after moment in which Jesus, in in which God himself is faithful and, and the promise rests on his faithfulness and not on the people. Over and over and over again, it's exactly why the one who sends me sent me. Jesus says, my will and the will of the Father are in unison. I've lovingly and willingly taken on this charge of coming to do this for you. So what is that? Well, here we see finally contrasting purposes, verses 28 to 30. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, right? Right now you don't know. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. What's the central purpose that the people hoped the Messiah had come to deal with? They were hoping for an earthly king. That's really the reality. They were hoping for an earthly king, one to rid the world of injustices that they saw as being central. One to rid the world of oppressiveness that they saw as being a problem. Was it a problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they centrally had the purpose of a Messiah who would come to make Israel great as a nation. They were hoping for an earthly king who would come and point out how everyone else is wrong and they're right, you know. Where do we see the central purpose of Jesus? God himself 
entering into human history to die on a cross. When you see, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. So we talked about this a lot. I won't belabor the point. But this phrase, lifted up, it's important. Double meaning in John's Gospel. We, look, we saw it on Good Friday. We saw it a couple weeks ago. We're looking at it again now. Yes, it means lifted up in the sense of Jesus will be exalted. He'll be glorified. It demonstrates that he is who he says he is. He's going to be lifted to his proper place. But it also speaks of the way. And just as the Son of Man will be lifted, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. It speaks of this way in which he's glorified. The path through which he would go to the Father, which is at the cross, the central reason he had to come. The central reason Jesus comes. Jesus didn't come, and we need to understand this, Jesus didn't come in the hopes that he would be embraced by the world and then shocked, dismayed that they reject him and nail him to a cross. Jesus came knowing that he was already rejected, knowing where he already stood, knowing what the rebels would do if the king came. But he came to die, to face the judgment we deserved. Jesus says, if you miss me, you'll die in your sins. But I have come to die in your sins. If you miss me, you'll die in your sins. But if you believe in me, you'll come to trust that I am he who came to die in your sins. You know, like if... If we were to die in our sins, if we were to miss a Savior and die in our sins, and it's our sins. This is just, this is what we deserve. But listen, Jesus says, unless we believe in him, we'll die in our sins. What, it, what is it that we're called to believe? That he died in our sins. That our sin was placed in him at the cross. That he lived the life we should have lived but failed to live. He died the death that he's talking about right here in this chapter. He died the death that he says we will die apart from him. He died that death. So that we wouldn't have to die. He stood in our place as our substitute so that now, by relying entirely on his mercy, mercy that we have centrally at the cross of Christ, we can have life. He was raised to new life. He invites us into that newness of life, but it's only found in him, and it's only found in a recognition of our neediness and a recognition that it's only in his life that we have life. It's only in his death that we have life. He stood in our place. When Jesus says... Then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak only as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's not saying at the cross everyone will be converted. Like, we know that's not true. We know that there are those in the text that reject him. We know that there are those in the world who will reject him. There are those who will not want Jesus in the end. John talks about this in Revelation, right? There are those who will not desire God. Jesus doesn't force those who don't desire him to spend eternity with him. So that's not what this is saying, but it is saying that in the end it will be apparent to everyone by way of the cross that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. You know, it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes the exact same thing. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is why he came. He came to die. 
This is why he came, to die in our sins. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, lifted up. This is the way in which he would be lifted up. Bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end it will be apparent by way of the cross that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. There will be those for eternity who don't desire to be with him, but there will be no question that he is God, that he is Lord, that he came to give himself for us that we might have life in him. And yet before the cross, what happens? In verse 30, what happens? The words of Jesus are spoken here with such authority and power and love, a compelling love. The story of a creator lovingly coming into his creation to die for them, to give his life. The king stepping in to give his life for the rebels who deserve death. But some immediately believe in this testimony as he reveals it to them. Certainly not with full understanding. Certainly not with full understanding of the cross. But there's, there's a sense in which, like, why does John include these details, like after the water into wine, there are those who believe. Here in this section, there, there, there are those who believe. It's because he wants to encourage our hearts to rightly respond to Jesus. Say, like, this is what it looks like to rightly respond to him. Jesus reveals himself to us. To, to rightly respond to him is to believe in what it is that he says is true. And we know we can believe. Why? Because he came and he stepped into a world with sin and suffering and death, took that upon his shoulders so that we might know him. And this is why we come to the table each week. You know, the question is, how do you respond to Jesus this morning? If you're here this morning and you respond by saying, I believe. I believe that he is who he says he is. I believe that he came to do that for me. I believe that I'm in need of a savior. This meal that we celebrate is for you. This is a meal that believers have shared together regularly that proclaims Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us, the reality of him standing as our substitute that we might have life in him. So, so we, we share this together as believers. If you're not a believer here this morning, I'd, I'd, I'd implore you, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and let this be your first time of communion declaring your belief to other believers.